I first met him, I thought some geneticist should figure out what, what happened here. Taking Pavarotti and plugging him into a Marshall amp, <laughs> turning it up to 11. The songs do not work unless I've built a character. The great thing about Meatloaf is he's his own special effect. And when Bad of the Hell came out, I thought they were going to blow us up with dynamite at some point. Partly that's the answer to that. I think it's timeless in the sense that it didn't fit into any trend. It's never been part of what's going on. You could, you could release that record at any time and it would be out of place. talk about fucking trappos fucking bad house <laughs> we gotta open up the gates the floodgates and let the meatloaf through show that talks about meat on purpose <laughs> welcome to trapo the show that talks about meat on purpose i'm kai i'm dustin we're gonna be talking about meatloaf tonight a subject very near and dear to my heart not the food not, not the dinner not, conglomeration no, we're not talking about a wad of meat put in the oven we're not i mean uh, did they cremate meatloaf i don't know maybe. I just got that part out. No. <laughs> you gotta leave that part in no, not that meatloaf we're talking about uh the late marvin lee a day aka meatloaf well not just meatloaf we're going to talk about his seminal 1977 collaboration with the uh, late great jim steinman a little thing they call bad out of hell we get started really discussing the ins and outs getting into the weeds of bad out of hell and we will be getting into the weeds so deep before we do that to preface the discussion by asking you what your uh, origins with meatloaf are where did you first discover the man the myth the legend and his music how did bad out of hell find its way into your life like most music i listened to it was because you told me to i had heard some of the songs on the radio some point probably i was not super familiar with it until uh one day you played it in the fucking car i'm sure we listened to meatloaf on cd at some point we literally made a trip to walmart i was like kai i don't have bad out of hell on cd we gotta get it we were there and had bad out of hell and we blasted bad out of hell on the way back from walmart it was late it was so late. That sounds about right. So that was the first time I probably listened to the whole album was whenever we were rocking that shit on the way back. Since then, I've listened to it quite a bit. My wife actually loves Meatloaf, and oh. this is her favorite Meatloaf album. I think my experience is a little different. When I was very young, whenever Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey came out, our grandmother took us to Medicine Lodge, me and my brother. I had to be nine years old. She took us to this festival. I had a cassette player with me because that's what I had, but she promised there was this gas station on the way. They had plenty of cassettes and we could stop and get some because they're usually really cheap. We go into this gas station and this is one of those like truck stops. For some reason, I don't even know, they may still have them. Gigantic tubs in them, like big tubs filled with cassette tapes in the wild. It's like you could dive into it like a ball pit. I found the Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey soundtrack and I found, never heard of it before, but I saw that Richard Corbett artwork for Bad Out of Hell. I gotta, I gotta listen to this. On the way to Medicine Lodge, I was listening to Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey soundtrack. It was great. It was a lot of fun. On the way back, I put in Bad Out of Hell, rocketed me off into space when I'm listening to this shit. I'd never been the same. Never been the same guy. It changed me. But that was how it started with me and Meatloaf. 1992, in the dark, on my way back from, <laughs> from Medicine Lodge, listening to Bad Out of Hell on cassette. I guess the story begins in 1973, Kai. A man named Jim Steinman, living in New York, working on a musical called More Than You Deserve. Now, have you ever heard of More Than You Deserve? No. Well, More Than You Deserve was set during the Vietnam War. It tells the story of an impotent army major who falls in love with a a nymphomaniac reporter. That's the story that he came up with (laughs) for More Than You Deserve. Sounds Jim Steinman-esque. Indeed. Meatloaf. Fresh off of his successful run playing Eddie on the Rocky Horror Show. Not the Rocky Horror Picture Show, that came later, but the actual stage production. He auditioned for a role in More Than You Deserve. And, well, according to Jim Steinman, this gigantic man bellowing the words he wrote with such conviction was utterly mesmerizing. He loved this man and knew that he was going to be the next big thing. The pair became fast friends. I mean, the way they figured it, Jim Steinman basically found the guy who could bring his lyrics to life. And Meatloaf had found the person who could utilize his vocal talents correctly this is a match made in heaven and after more than you deserve wrapped up 
the two joined the National Lampoon Tour in 1975. Technically, they replaced John Belushi and uh, Dan Aykroyd on the tour, too, which is... Oh, I didn't know that. And this is where they also met Ellen Foley, who became important later on. Steinman was also developing a new musical. This is the one that became an obsession with him. It was a Peter Pan riff called Neverland. Meatloaf and Jim Steinman both thought three of the songs that he was developing from this musical, Bad Out of Hell, Heaven Can Wait, and something called Formation of the Pack, which eventually became known as All Revved Up With No Place To Go. They both thought these songs were pretty exceptional. These became the seed to develop a full album of material. Steinman, he saw his future on the stage, making musicals, maybe working in a movie. That's where he wanted to be. He figured, you know, screw it. I'll take a shot, try to make one album. He was kind of high on the idea of building some kind of bombastic kind of Wagnerian movie for the ears. That was his concept, a movie for the ears, something big and cinematic. And when Steinman felt the music was polished enough, he and Meatloaf, well, they obviously attempted to sell the album to basically every record label they could convince to give them any time. The way they auditioned for these labels, Steinman would sit at a piano, play basically every song they had, the entire album, and Meatloaf would just sing. If you think about it, that's so goddamn bizarre. People don't do that. They didn't have demos to share. Steinman's sitting behind the piano, playing the music, while this, like, 350-pound man is just, like, bellowing for, like, 45 minutes. I wished that I had been, like, a fly on the wall at one of these auditions just to see that. Steinman said that most executives had absolutely no idea what they were listening to. They didn't know how to accept what they were hearing because nobody had ever really tried to make music like this before. Forgetting the record companies, we went to every producer and got comments like, it's ridiculous, you can't do this on a record. You can do this on stage, maybe, but you can't do it on a record. You know, because they'd see something like Paradise by the Dash for Light, which was, like, 20 minutes when we did it, with all the acted stuff, Meatloaf making out with... Ellen Foley, Phil Rizzuto's speech, which at the time I would do live. And they just think, this is crazy, it can't be a record. And I would think, I don't see why not. It was like the soundtrack of a movie, you just do it like that. It was new, it was weird, no one knew what to make of it. Steinman called it a medley of the worst, most brutal rejections you could possibly imagine. The one that really hit home for Meatloaf was being rejected by a CBS Records because Clive Davis, he didn't just say no. He questioned Jim Steinman's knowledge of rock and roll music and music in general. He told Jim Steinman when they were in the building to buy some real rock records in the building lobby on his way out just so he could know what rock music sounds like. <laughs> it's a good way to inspire someone with your spite. Steinman brushed the remarks off. He tried not to let it get it under his skin, but Meatloaf was just pissed. In his perspective, Jim Steinman has an encyclopedic knowledge of rock and roll. And this guy, this old prick, is questioning his knowledge. I mean, the truth of the matter is, most of Steinman's inspiration, musically, didn't come from rock music. He spent his youth in his own head. He was dreaming up stories of, like, tragic heroes and big operatic love affairs, fantasy sword and sorcery. His first musical loves... They weren't rhythm and blues giants from the 50s. They weren't like the rock explosion from the 60s. His musical inspirations were soaring classical compositions, Beethoven, Mozart, even Wagner. And when he started developing his stage musicals in the 70s, he wanted to take the classical sensibility that he'd honed and marry it with the, like, the untamed quality of rock and roll, the noise, the unbridled sexuality, along with you know, obviously the other obsessions in his head including an idealized teenage lust. Yeah, especially this album. Oh, a lot yeah. of his music, but especially this album. Bad Out of Hell is the culmination of that. Simon was taking all these like disparate elements, stitching them together into some musical Frankenstein monster, his rock and roll Peter Pan, the lost boys who don't want to grow up, making loud, aggressive music that deals in big, messy emotions. They spend their lives in an endless party on the road, never, never land. He said he wanted his songs to be movies for the ear, technically color like bleeding technicolor it was lurid now a lot of musical executives claimed that steinman had no idea what he was doing when he and meatloaf would present the music but that innocence that kind of naivete ultimately proved to be the saving grace of the album steinman says all i can say is thank god we knew nothing about making albums because otherwise this couldn't have happened i think that that quote is how a lot of like some of the best music that's how it happened because those artists weren't constrained by oh you, in order to make rock music you have to do this and that they were like i don't know almost every punk band was like we just thought it looked cool so we got a guitar and we fucking just smashed it till we figured it out and then guess what then you were the fucking misfits or what and that's kind of refreshing i mean these guys didn't know how to make an album meatloaf was a he was an actor 
and he can obviously sing. Steinman was a guy who wanted to work on the stage. He wanted to make his original ambition uh-huh. was to perform classical compositions, but he couldn't read or write sheet music, so that was out. Which seems silly because it's not that hard to at least learn how to read it. Some people don't have the aptitude for it, though. But yeah, also some of the people who made some amazing fucking music couldn't. That's oh, fine, yeah. too. Now, eventually, Todd Rundgren agreed to produce the album. He heard their demos. I've heard stories that say he was literally rolling on the floor laughing. He heard Bad Out of Hell in his ear as a Springsteen parody. I can't believe the world took it seriously. That was That's a quote, a direct quote. He was so <laughs> taken with this ridiculous project that he had to yeah. work on it. Todd was the only one, I swear to God, the only one. Strange enough, the producer we wanted was a guy named Bob Ezrin, who had done Lou Reed, but we couldn't get his phone number, and all the others hated it. Todd listened to us audition at the piano, and he said, okay. I don't see the problem. Let's go. He was that casual about it. He always was. Nothing surprises him. He's too smart. To this day, I, one of my favorite things about Todd is I don't think he's ever said a complimentary thing to me about the music, but I, I love that. You know, it's trivial. It'd be petty. Well, it's a load of inflated junk, but at least it's funny, and I'll do it. Why not? <laughs> and so he did it. What was he? What else was he doing at this time? Oh, Todd Rundgren was a, an accomplished musician. I know he. I know he was well accomplished by this at this point. Yeah. He'd been working with a band called Utopia that he put together at the time. He was also working at a place called Bearsville Studios in Woodstock. He'd been working on various albums there in several different capacities. Well, that's the main reason why Rundgren ended up taking Meatloaf and Steinman to Woodstock, New York, to record Bad Out of Hell in maybe October 1975. He brought in a whole bunch of musicians. A lot of them were session musicians, people that those names we wouldn't know. And which is, you know, it's a shame because session musicians, they basically make the musical world. Yeah. They're damn talented, but we just don't know their names. Uh, some of the, like, some of the names, Max Weinberg, drummer for the E Street Band. I didn't know that until recently also. I was like, oh, that's why I like the drums on this fucking album so much. He brought in uh, members of his band Utopia. Steinman brought in Ellen Foley and Rory Dodd. We know Rory Dodd from uh, the Bad for Good debacle. Even Edgar fucking Winter pops up. That's right. And all revved up with no place to go. That roaring, wailing saxophone at the beginning of that song. Picture crazy, long-haired, albino Edgar Winter jamming on that saxophone in a cramped studio in Woodstock, New York. It's magic. It's magic, Kai. Todd Rundgren ended up doing most of the musical arrangements himself since Steinman had the melodies in his head. So yeah, Rundgren had his work cut out for him, basically. Now, there's a legend surrounding the album that Todd Rundgren mixed the whole thing over one fevered night in the studio. It's true. He did mix Bad Out of Hell in one night. Todd um, mixed the whole record in one day. I didn't know about mixing at that time. Uh, I've come to realize it's the key to making a record in many ways, and it takes a long time sometimes. And uh, the mix is Todd did the whole album from 4 p.m. to 4 a.m., and it was one of the wildest things I've ever seen. We ended up remixing. It took about two months, at least. And the amazing thing is, two of his mixes are on there. Heaven Can Wait and Hot Summer Night. You took the words right out of my mouth. And that was the first song he mixed. You took the words right out of my mouth. He mixed it at his home studio in Woodstock. And I remember he said to me, Okay, let's mix the first song. What do you want here? You want Phil Spector? I said, that's what you want. Phil Spector, the usual. Okay, let's try this, this, this. Okay, let's see what happens. And he played the whole song. He didn't touch a thing. And that's the mix that's on the record. We tried four or five times to see if we could top it. Couldn't even come close. And I thought, this guy's a genius. It sounds perfect. Then the next four songs he mixed, I thought it sounded terrible. <laughs> Except for Heaven Kuwait, which is also on the record. It's gorgeous. Meatloaf particularly hated the mix of Paradise by the Dashboard Light. A fellow named Jimmy Iovine, or let's say not coincidentally, had mixed Springsteen's Born to Run album. Actually, one of Steinman's original candidates to produce the album. Ended up doing the final mix for Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. John Jansen, who they ended up bringing back for Bad for Good, mixed uh, the album versions of Paradise by the Dashboard Light and all ribbed up. Regardless, Jim Steinman claimed later on that Todd Rundgren was the only true genius he'd ever worked with. Well, I think Todd Rundgren is... Well, first of all, I think he's a genius, and I don't use that word a lot. I don't think I've ever used it about more than two or three people in pop music. He's certainly the only genius I've ever worked with. He actually takes my breath away, Todd. I wish people knew how brilliant he really is, even though his albums are staggering. They're not even the tip of the iceberg. He was so instrumental in this being done. For one thing, he's the only producer who would do it. (laughs) So just on that basis alone, he was very valuable. Jim Steinman was in awe 
of this man. It's very safe to say that Bad Out of Hell simply would not exist without Todd Rundgren's numerous contributions. Really, if that it was fair, that record should be Bad Out of Hell, written by Jim Steinman, starring Meatloaf, uh, produced by Todd Rundgren. Partly because he didn't question it. How do we make this more palatable? He just did it. He accepted the music for what it was. I, th I think to this day, he probably thinks half the ideas that I made him do in the record are ridiculous. It didn't matter. I didn't want someone sucking up. I wanted someone great, and he was just awesome. Like um, a special guitar solo coming up. Title track. We're getting into the music. We're starting with uh, track one of seven, Bat Out of Hell. Title track right off the bat. It's a fucking baller, man. I mean, this fucking track is it. <laughs> it's big. It's loud, man. It's now, got the... ups. It's got downs. Oh, yeah. So it's got like a three-minute guitar solo. <laughs> Steinman's manager made a claim that uh, Steinman would come up with the titles for the songs first, these big grandiose titles, and that he would try to write lyrics to justify those titles after the fact. That's pretty clear from the beginning of Bad yeah. Hell. I don't. I feel like I've heard that in a writing class somewhere as like a strategy where if you're stuck, you need a topic. You can start with the topic and you can start with the topic sentence and then turn that into a topic paragraph. So I could totally imagine you just sit around thinking about weird shit until something catches and then you think bad out of hell oh i gotta write that shit down i gotta write that down right now i can make that into something he fucking did it yeah by by humming it <laughs> to some fucking mad genius who's like all right fucking figure this shit out you wait, wait you want a piano and a guitar and a bass guitar and a saxophone and a motorcycle and which part's which oh you'll figure it out oh fuck turns out did good enough. They were all just faking it until they made it, except for Todd running and he was like, I know what I'm doing. Shut the fuck up. Give me the guitar. Give me 20 minutes. It's a good, it's a good thing I like your crazy-ass songs. It's going to be a lot of work. The Bruce Springsteen influence. It's a Thunder Road in particular. Pretty evident here. We say the boss never went this florid in his prose. Yeah. There's evil in the hand, there's thunder in the sky, and a killer's on the bloodshot streets. Born down in the tunnel with a deadly horizon Oh, I swear I saw a young boy down in the gutter He was stopping the foam in the heat Steinman's composition is an explosion, in, the, in my opinion. <laughs> it goes boom. And Meatloaf is singing this with such conviction. Here we go. Todd Rundgren's legendary guitar. It floors me. That growling guitar leading to that soaring solo. That's a killer, man. <laughs> Steinman wanted the sound of a motorcycle on the track. I remember one take, and it was one amazing take, and it had this big hole in it. You know, I wanted a motorcycle. Todd felt it was all over. I was like, you know, the really annoying whining kid. Todd, where's the motorcycle? You said we can have a motorcycle. I want a motorcycle. And the kid you wanted to slap around, and he's so oh, you want a motorcycle. You don't have enough. A thousand background vocals, a million guitar solos, a ten-minute song. You want a motorcycle? Yeah, I want a motorcycle. Says, all right. I said, do you have motorcycle sound effects? He said, no, I don't deal with sound effects. I'll do it with my guitar. I said, how can you do that? You can do it with your guitar. I felt like a four-year-old. I'll show you how I'll do it with my guitar. And if you hear the multitracks, you'll hear it. It's just one take. Oh, I forgot to ask you. Is it a Yamaha, a Kawasaki, or a Harley Davidson? Oh, Harley Davidson. I thought so. <laughs> Why did I even ask? And then he actually, you know, you wonder whether he's a total text. And he goes and adjusts very specifically, like three buttons. And you don't know what he's doing. And then he did the motorcycle with his guitar. And it's still one of the most amazing, especially if you notice one take. <laughs> you hear it rev up. You hear the motor. You hear fire coming out of it. You hear it do wheelie. That's my favorite thing. At one point, it does a wheelie. You hear it go. You just see it rise up and do a wheelie. I mean, this is amazing. I thought he was going to stop for gas. You know, it's like with Todd, anything's possible. He made a motorcycle out of a guitar. Steinman was like, just give it like a run, 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 run. <laughs> I could just imagine him like humming half of it and then growling half of it at him. It's like, this is going to sound stupid. You mean like this? Yes. Yes. Like that. His guitar sounds like a motorcycle. He's a fucking genius. You can imagine like Jim Steinman jumping up and down in the fucking recording room. Just, just, fucking do? just pointing at him in the booth. Like, yes, yes, yes. Look, if we were in that studio and we watched it happen, our jaws would hit the floor. People don't give Todd Rundgren the credit he deserves. They hear like, hello, it's me. And they're like, oh, really? Okay. It's good, but really? You don't understand the genuine talent that this man had. Rundgren, I guess, laid down every guitar part for Bad Out of Hell in 45 minutes i could just imagine he practiced like this and then just shredded their fucking faces off and they're yes yes 
Yes. According to Meatloaf, the sense of amazement that he had watching Todd Rundgren perform this amazing feat live never left him. Wow, that was fucking awesome. 45 minutes. It's a 10-minute song. He did it, man. He blew me away. We haven't even gotten into the content of the song. We're still over the Todd Rundgren's guitar. Which is worthy. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it just shreds your face off from the fucking first second. The wild keyboards in that intro. I mean, I just, I'm hearing the whole goddamn song running through my head now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could not ask for a better way to open an album. That sets the stage. The title track, I think, is like kind of a microcosm for the whole album. Like, it's (laughs) its own rock opera. But then the whole album is like that extrapolated into the next 40 minutes. The rest of the album has to live up to that. It's pretty pretty level all the way through. Yeah, we don't really have any bad apples in the bunch. There's highs and lows, which are probably personal. But we get to the opening verse of the song which just paints a picture of a nightmarish world in the grips of apocalyptic madness you talk about painting a picture that's not a good place the singer's object of affection is the only thing that's pure and good and right that's that's a good line man they can spend the night together but he has to slink away when the sun rises again He's going nuts. Meatloaf is belting that out. And you can feel it, like in your bones. I mean, you're talking about the the Peter Pan influence. It's right there. Mm -hmm. This character, he's a part of this rotten world outside the girl's door. No matter how badly he loves this woman, he'll never really belong. So you've got the dystopian Peter Pan. He comes to Wendy with the setting of the sun. But when dawn breaks, he has to return to this twisted Neverland. Nothing really rocks, nothing really rolls, and nothing's ever worth the cost. And I know that I'm damned if I never get out. Maybe I'm damned if I do. He's selling something there. I'd rather be damned with you. All this guy's got is the endless highway and the dream of a girl in this cursed world. But of course, the love affair is doomed, as we all know, because uh, Jim Steinman was inspired by these so-called tragedy songs. Started with um, the title and the choruses and the overall idea and the impulse to write the ultimate car. A slash motorcycle crash song. Such a big deal in the 1950s and 60s. The one that always stuck out for me was Last Kiss by Wayne Cochran. Well, where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's going to heaven, so I got to be good. So I can see my baby when I leave this world. The Pearl Jam cover was one of the first songs that ever just made me fucking cry. It's just like, I'm not crying, you're crying. Why are you doing this to me? I thought you were my friend, Eddie Vedder. They literally named a genre of music after this. Yeah. Tragedy songs. That's a thing. There's a lot of them. And so Steinman said, you know what? I want to write the ultimate crash song. And so he wrote Bad Out of Hell. And when you reach the end of the song, you kind of feel like he might have done it. It's so big. And it's so ridiculous in the best possible way then i'm down at the bottom of the pit in the blazing song torn and twisted at the foot of a burning bar and i think somebody somewhere must be torn in a bell and the last thing i see is my heart still be that's it you 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 literally hear the crash in the song once again thanks to todd rundgren and his his amazing guitar work you hear the crash and then the last thing the character sees is his fucking heart flying out of his body like a bat out of hell you can't beat that shit man it's heat it's hyperbole. It's not meant to be taken completely seriously. It is. Yeah. It is over the top and oh, loud yeah. and big, exciting. The whole song. It doesn't just paint a picture in your head. It plays a movie in your head. You see the whole thing happen. It works like gangbusters, man. And that's that's how the album begins. 
And that takes us to... That's, this is song two. The spoken word intro sounds, it's, uh, it's garish, but in a good way. I'm, I'm not, this is not a complaint. I always wondered, it sounds kind of like a cult indoctrination in a way. <laughs> it, yeah. But I always, I always kind of looked at it like it's, it's either a cult indoctrination or this is some kind of weird twisted pagan wedding vow thing going on you know there's like a right. wedding in the forest the priest is wearing antlers you know what i mean there's something happening here yeah someone has a blood cross or x yeah. on their forehead yeah that's how they seal the deal they don't have rings they're putting animal blood on their foreheads and of course in the neverland musical which became the bad out of hell musical they are wedding vows right in for my grand epic which i'll get to someday which is this rock and roll peter pan neverland and that was the wedding vows of wendy and peter uh they get married in it and uh the lost boys are all the sort of the altar boys at the ceremony i do remember writing it for that on a hot summer night would you offer your throat to the wolf of the red rose it, it seemed like a great wedding vow to me <laughs> that was my idea of a cool wedding vow and so that's what the spoken thing was and it wasn't necessarily made for this song originally bat of the hell had another big speech in it but david sonnenberg and meatloaf both refused to put two speeches on the record, which I really, that's the only thing I regret, come to think of it. I, the other speech is a very cool speech, and I wish it had uh, been there. Short one, but it was cool. Before, all wrapped up with no place to go. I like it. I like it a lot. I like this. It sets the stage very well. When the woman says, And does he love me? You hear Jim Steinman. Yes. It's this vulnerable whisper. Before that, he's always, Yes. Very emphatic. Uh-huh. But then when you get to that one, he, he lets his guard down. It's tender. The word itself kind of drifts away. A hot summer night. Would you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses? Yes. I bet you say that to all the boys. The song itself is just pure tongue-tied adolescent love. That's mm-hmm. what it is. Oh, it's about fucking but it's romantic fucking this is consenting lovers sneaking away to have a good time it's good clean american fun they're aching with this fiery teenage libido you can feel that raw emotion like a cauldron of boiling oil these feelings are running hot you know you're gonna get burned but you don't care i do think it's very amusing that the song itself was born out of a challenge meatloaf basically dared jim steinman to write a song it wasn't like a 15-minute epic. He just wanted a straightforward pop song. Can you do that for me, Jim? And so Jim delivered in a big way. They can't all be bad to hell. Can't all be paradise by the dashboard. Like, you got to give me something short and sweet. You were actually talking about this before when we were covering uh, Bad for Good. Do all of these songs have to be 13 minutes long? Yeah. Can you cut this song in half and put it on the radio? I guess Meatloaf felt the same way in, like, 1975. took the words right out of my mouth is probably the most radio friendly track on the album for that reason yeah that's not a knock against it and like the narrative of the whole album kind of seems like it's the um it's the beginning of the young love but it's so sweet it feels innocent and that's the best part about it you know there's fucking going on the whole hook about it took the words right out of my mouth must have been while you were kissing me i was just about to say i love you but you took the words right out of my mouth yeah that's the verse i was thinking of that's genuine affection that's very effective jim steinman can do that he's like a wizard jim you're a poet. People call a uh, fucking Jim Morrison a poet. Fuck that. He was just a drunk. Come on, that's not poetry. <laughs> There's your poetry. Hey, like Roadhouse Blues is my favorite Doors song, so I can say that. Is that my favorite Doors yeah. song? Jesus, I think it is. The light version is my favorite one from their greatest hits album because that's the part mm-hmm. when he's rambling afterwards. <laughs> I don't know how many of you people believe in astrology. Yeah, well, I'm a Sagittarius. This is the most philosophical of the science. Well, anyway, I don't believe in it. The bunch same, of bullshit yeah that same girl i don't believe it either god you're such a fucking sicko fan what are you doing lady i don't know what's gonna happen man 
But I want to have my kicks before the whole shithouse goes up in flames. All right. This drunk man in tight leather pants just like leaning on stage and rambling about fucking astrology. I don't know what the fuck is going on. This is gold, Jerry. You know what else is gold? The third song, uh, Meatloaf and Jim Steinman's Bad Out of Hell album, Heaven Can Wait. Heaven Can Wait. And a band of angels wrapped up in my heart will take me through the lonely night, through the cold of the grave. Gold! Maybe platinum. I'm not sure. Not sure how many millions, but enough. If Hot Summer Night is the explosive moment of passionate teenage exuberance, Heaven Can Wait is the afterglow. It's the quiet, contemplative moment when the heat has died down. But the connection, that love, remains. It's not just lust or passing affection. This song is a declaration of sweet, adoring love. Absolutely. Yeah. It's nothing but piano and voice on the record. Uh, there's no other instruments. It was, uh, I mean, there's an orchestra way behind, but I just wanted it to be like that. Uh, again, that was for Neverland. It was my Peter Pan musical, and that was a song that Wendy sang after she married Peter. Give me all of your dreams, a taste of paradise it's all i really need to make me stay the way meatloaf is singing these lyrics give me all your dreams let me go along on your way i want to fuck you meatloaf (laughs) he sings so sweetly and all i got is time time. how do you do it steinman how do you do it that line is is brilliant you got steinman's piano is singing to match Meatloaf's pure emotion. It's a duet between Meatloaf and Steinman's piano, and you can't go wrong with that. It's the perfect way to explain how you want to spend that moment. That leads us to uh, all revved up, no place to go. What does all revved up with no place to go mean to you, Kai? What does it mean to you? Well, I, I can uh, definitely identify with the um, the sentiment in the song of being like, in, in the song, it's especially a bit of, um, obviously, it's sexual in nature. Yeah. But it's also, um, it's kind of a, about like describing a small town high school life like I had. Everything was cool. But then on Saturday night, it was like all revved up and nowhere to go. You know, there's something going on. You know, there's people to fucking be hanging out with and shit to be doing, but you ain't got no place to go. Nobody invited you. You you don't have a girl to go figure it out with. After I listened to it a couple of times, I was like, yeah, I don't know. Also feels like I'm just going to rub one out in my room and <laughs> play video games again, I guess. <laughs> the word of the day is frustration. Yeah. Love is outside that window. You feel that fever grow. Of course, it's obviously a it's obviously a sexual fever in the in the song. He wants something. There's there's something happened, but someone's got to draw first blood. You get the feeling. Oh, I got to draw first blood. That's the reason why uh, initially the song was titled Formation of the Pack. He's building the pack here. That's what's happening. That's the one song in the record. Every song in the record I co-arranged with Todd. I really should say that's mostly his arrangement. Because what happened with that is that originally was a really, again, that was like a 10-minute song. had a big sort of frantic dance in the middle. Actually, the whole suggestion of a life of a kid who's all wrapped up with no place to go. I do remember that's the one time I got really sick. I was really healthy through the whole making of the record, but we were up in Woodstock. I got really sick, and I was actually in bed. I remember I couldn't do anything, and I remember Meatloaf coming up saying, Jimmy, Jimmy, and he's like pulling me out of the bed. He's like, get out of the bed. Todd's ruining the song. Come on, because Meatloaf did all this other stuff, and it was so, you know, it was like the others. It was a big, elaborate epic. And Todd, probably smartly, 
said, do they all have to be big, elaborate epics? Can't we have one that's just a song, a four-minute rock and roll song? And I remember me trying to pull me out of the bed. I said, I can't, man, I can't. Said, but it's going to ruin it. And it was pretty much Todd's range, and it's brilliant. You know, nothing was changed musically, but he just really streamlined it. And uh, and then it was cool because we got Edgar Winter to come in and play saxophone on it. And that was funny. That was a Todd studio, and strange albino saxophonist arrives and hits notes that don't even exist. It was, it was cool. He was out on the prowl, down by the edge of the track. Yeah, he draws first blood. No more lonely Saturday nights, maybe. This is a varsity tackle and a hell of a block. But then when you follow that up, but, but every Saturday night, I felt the fever grow. And I could I could imagine them trying to audition this song, just him banging on a piano and meatloaf belting this out. I don't know if it would have been the same. You hit the nail on the head right there. No wonder those guys laughed at him. And yeah. to, but Todd Rundgren was like, ah. I don't know, it's kind of fucking stupid, but I kind of like it. <laughs> but I mean, Edgar Winter's saxophone wailing that intro. The song is encapsulated in that wailing sax. I think it's great, okay? I think it's great in the song. When I learned that Edgar Winter was that guy, I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? That makes it better. Yeah. It's wearing its emotions on its sleeve. I want to say, I was going to say, like, like the front of its pants. You can see that. <laughs> that you can see the hard on right there. Yeah. That right on the crotch. Up and no place to go! And that leads us to uh, two out of three in bed. Apparently, a friend of Jim Steinman's had uh, asked the man to write a simple song and uh, she specifically cited elvis's i want you i need you i love you so this is what steinman dreamed up it began with a really good friend of mine who's now uh, married to my best friend from school a woman named mimi kennedy uh when i was complaining that no one wanted to sign us and no one seemed to like the music saying well it's so complicated why don't you write something simple and the oldie station was on in the other room or something and they were playing elvis i want you i need you i love you and she said why don't you write something like that i said well i'll try and i went home and the best i could do was i want you i need you but there ain't no way i'm ever gonna love you don't be sad two out of three ain't bad i still had to twist it around a bit the album was basically finished and they were complaining there were no singles which there probably wasn't. Everything was like seven minutes long, and they wanted a pop single, and so I went to write that with that specific thought in mind. And um, that's where it began as a lyric. I want you, I need you, but there ain't no way I'm ever going to love you. I mean, come on. Steinman met that challenge with a wink. It's so, so bitter and so cynical. I mean, beginning yeah. to end. Baby, you can cry all night. But And then here's the, and then the, the line, the really telling line is what comes next. The snow is really piling up outside. I wish you wouldn't make me leave here. <laughs> That's the one. But you've been cold to me so long. I'm crying icicles instead of tears. And then he goes, I want you. I need you. Don't be sad. It's two out of three in bed. The way Steinman is building this song, those lyrics are fucking great. I think my favorite was the uh, the the bridge. You'll you'll never find your gold on a sandy mm. beach. You never drill for oil on a city street. I know you're looking for a ruby in a mountain of rocks, but there ain't no coup de When you get right to the end, there ain't no Coupe de Ville hiding in the bottom of a Cracker Jack box. Literally, Todd Rodengren said, you could only get away with that lyric in a meatloaf song. And make it sound <laughs> not st totally fucking stupid, like when you or I say it aloud. I love the brutal honesty of the song, I guess. Yeah. He's never going to give you something he just hasn't got. You can cry all night, but it'll never change the way he feels. He's asking this person to accept what he can offer, which, I mean, isn't much. And it's incredibly unfair to that person on the other end of that conversation. But it, it, it's the best he can do. He's a selfish jerk. But I guess at least he's honest about it. Um, maybe. I also kind of read it like you try in a relationship and you're like, you know, it's just not going to work. But the other person's like, no, it'll work. I am telling you because I'm half of the relationship that this is not going to work. I, I don't necessarily always get at the feeling that it's like a total dick move. But it's like, it's definitely brutal. I don't be Sad. Don't be sad, don't. Plus two out of three 
Yeah. Well, I mean, in the context of the song, he is saying, I want you and I need you. He's saying he'll, he'll, he'll be with her, but he can't give her his heart. Yeah, I guess that's true. Really, it does feel like the guy's just being an asshole. But at the yeah. same time, he is being honest. He's saying, I- I'll stay with you. I really just don't want to go outside right now because it's snowing and it's cold. They'll make me leave, but I don't love you. You're a dick. She's probably going to stay with him. She's probably going to let him stay. These are unhealthy relationships. It's all too common. I don't know. I, I've, I've always been conflicted about the song because it's very well done. The story it's telling just always breaks my heart. I feel bad for Meatloaf because he had his heart torn out by this woman who left him. But, you know, you know hey, hey, guess what? She might have had a good reason to leave him. We don't know. Right. Yeah. She might have left him because he was a dick. She's like, you know what? Meatloaf, I'm out. But I love you. Okay, bye. <laughs> and he's like, but it's snowing and cold outside. Do I have he's to? Like, yeah, yeah. Get the... Bye. Yeah. Once again, I get those vibes of like uh, the Everclear song. I like, I'll buy you a new life. Mm-hmm. Just open the door. I will buy you a garden where your flowers can be. The Everclear song, he was basically trying to sell her the world. Like, I'll give you whatever you take. Just open the door. Meatloaf's like, this is what I am. Take it or leave it. But I don't want to leave because it's fucking cold. <laughs> Yeah, I appreciate the brutal honesty of this song. This isn't a love affair. If you can't accept that, I'll go. But can I go in the morning because it's really fucking cold outside? Good job. Crying icicles instead of tears? Yeah. I don't know why, but I'm kind of in love with it. (laughs) It's pretty fucking good. And that leads us to the penultimate song on Bad Out of Hell, which basically everybody agrees is the centerpiece, the crown jewel of the album. Paradise by the Dashboard Lights. Now, what is Paradise by the Dashboard like, Kai? Fuck, I don't know. It's it's love, it's lust, it's mistakes that will affect the rest of our lives. The teenage indiscretions, that one moment of bliss in the tight confines of what I imagine is a, a classic car. Maybe it is a Coupe de Ville, I don't know. But they're going to fuck in that car. They're going to have a lot of fun for about five minutes. And then it's going to be a lifetime of misery. <laughs> But right now, it's a paradise by the dashboard light. It's because of a sexual impulse. One night, to fulfill a sexual desire, their whole lives are ruined. <laughs> and the whole song is actually, to me, a very despairing song, but told with incredible, you know, joie de vivre. Sometimes I always wonder whether people read the final section or hear it. You can't get much more bleaker than, you know, I swore I promised I'd love you till the end of time. So now I'm praying for the end of time to hurry up and arrive. <laughs> I just think that's about as true and as bleak a thing as you could say it the sexes and how they get together. So it's interesting that the last two songs of the record, one of them is a comic song that has a very dark underpinning, and the other is a very romantic, soaring, somewhat dark song that actually is very ecstatic. But I love that. I love that. It felt like the uh, world. I was going to say, like, what more can be said about this song because everybody's talked about it. Meatloaf and Ellen Foley, they're singing their hearts out on this song. Definitely. They're belting this shit out. get that old school rock vibe in the first third of the song it's infectious man you got that doo-wop shit happening and you're like yeah okay i'm in that line glowing like the metal on the edge of a knife that's a big Mm -hmm. emotion a full display right there that's the one that always snags me the line that always always hit me i never had a girl look at any better than you did i mean yeah they're jealous but she's not looking for a fling. That's not what she wants. The song ends up kind of subverting your expectations, especially of the era. The girl is ultimately the more aggressive partner, but that's because she's looking for a commitment. Oh, no, no. The girl has a voice in this, and she's like, yeah, this is not going to happen. I'm not just giving it away. Meatloaf's begging her off, you know. He's not thinking clearly at the moment. He's thinking with his dick. You can hear her singing. Ellen Foley is in his face. He swears on God, on his mother's grave. He'll love her till the end of time. That was a big mistake, man. At the end of the song, when it's fading out, Meatloaf singing, it was long ago, it was far away. It was so much better than it is today. But Ellen Foley's singing, it never felt so good, it never felt so right. We were glowing like the metal on the edge of a knife. (laughs) 
It's really telling that both parties, the boy and the girl, are singing the final verses of that song. It's not just Meatloaf trapped in that relationship. They're both unhappy. They're both praying for the end of time. I remember hearing that line and be like, shit has turned. Praying for the end of time. So now I'm praying for the end of time. To hurry up and arrive. if I gotta spend another minute with you, I don't think that I can really survive. And you know, Carla DeVito, from uh, Dance in My Pants, the, the girl who sang Dance in My Pants. <laughs> Dance in My Pants, yeah. Ellen Foley couldn't join the live tour to support Bad Out of Hell, so Carla DeVito ended up the backup singing and to sing on uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Literally everyone who saw Meatloaf live was hearing Carla DeVito sing Paradise by the Dashboard Light. It works perfectly, Kai. We don't have to spend 30 minutes talking about Paradise by the Dashboard Light because it's pretty self-explanatory, let's be honest. Yeah, especially from uh, comments on our blog. This is also one of those favorite Meatloaf songs, Top Request. Can you blame them, Kai? Fuck them. <laughs> no. Oh, fuck? Oh. Wow, wow, Kai, Wait, wow. No. song is stupid. The mask is off. The truth is revealed. Kai is the masked douchebag. We <laughs> it did was it. me the whole time. It's me, Austin! Oh, son of a bitch! What? It's me, Austin! It was me all along, Austin! Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm... <laughs> but Paradise, I think more people know Paradise because it's done at almost every wedding. Anybody that gets married in America, uh, they uh, play Paradise by the Dashboard Light. I've had women tell me they've conceived by Paradise by the Dashboard Light. It's so long they've given birth to Paradise by the Dashboard Light. And DJs back in the 70s and 80s loved Bad Out of Hell and Paradise by the Dashboard Light because it was so long they'd get up and go to the bathroom and get back we might as well wrap up this sordid tale because we've finally reached the conclusion with the final track for crying out loud the crying out loud you know how i love you the crying out loud you know how i love you Now, Kai, what do you think about For Crying Out Loud? What are your impressions? I'm in the middle of nowhere near the end of the line. There's a border to somewhere and tank full of time. Yes, yes. <laughs> I don't know. It kind of sounds sweet, but then it's also like uh, pretty melancholy. There's more to it than just I love you. It couldn't just be the simple declaration of love that Heaven Can Wait was. Heaven Can Wait is definitely the song about young love. For crying out loud is more mature. Does it say for giving me a child when my body is old or something? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. So this is the point where the, the characters from the album, they go from, like, fucking in the car, fast forward to, they got kids and it's uh, shit. And maybe, I don't know, I assumed it was the same characters, but maybe not. This isn't technically a concept album, but I, if you wanted to kind of follow the, the title track doesn't fit in at all with any right. of it. It's its own yeah. thing. But if you want to kind of follow in... You took the words right out of my mouth. You can kind of follow a through line if you wanted to. If you wanted to kind of follow the threads, you could say it's a concept album. It's a stretch, but you could do it. Or at least for me, from the two characters from Paradise by Dashboard, like, it kind of seems like this is a continuation of that. And that just may be placement of the songs. Maybe I just like the contrast specifically of them being like, finally going all the way in the fucking backseat. And then in the future and shit's kind of melancholy when you actually reach the midpoint of the song it turns around it opens with the line i was lost till you were found but i never knew how far down i was falling before i reached the bottom that's a pretty big deal right there and then you have the line i know you belong inside my aching heart and can't you see my fate and leave us just in a now, Jim Steinman, he considered that to be his most daring line on the album. I mean, come on. What I like about it is, is that it combines very raw and specific erotic sexual imagery with the humor. You know, I'll tell you, the line I'm probably proudest of in the whole record, I'm proud of so many lyrics in the record, but I'm probably proudest just because it's the most daring one, is it's my favorite song, For Crying Out Loud, the final song. I think in a way, maybe perverse of me, but... For crying out loud, I love all the lyrics, and I love that it's so ecstatic. A lot of letters I've gotten over the years, thousands of them, it's so amazing to me how often this is quoted as the favorite song. But I love it, and I think his performance is astonishing. 
I love the lyric where it goes, um, and I know you belong inside my aching heart. Can't you see my faded Levi's bursting apart? I love that because <laughs> it's it's so blatantly a boner line. <laughs> Having the gall to give it to Meatloaf, I had so many people say, "Is that because the pants are too tight? Is that a metaphor?" I said, "Actually, it's just a boner line. <laughs> it's just I just want to put it in there." And yet I find that very poetic. You know, you belong inside my aching heart. Can't you see my faded Levi's bursting apart? I don't know. That makes little sense to me. He can still get an erection. He still gets hard for his woman, basically. I guess. So I mean, you know, he got that going for you. That's literally what he's saying. Can't you see my faded Levi's bursting apart? Come on, bro. Come on. But you know what? I'll give it to him. The first, what, two minutes at least of For Crying Out Loud is literally just Meatloaf's soulful voice and Steinman's gentle piano. That's the whole thing. That could have been the whole song. And then like three minutes and 20 seconds, the orchestra comes in. I was damned and you were saved And I never knew how enslaved I was kneeling It's bigger, it gets bombastic, the emotions are growing because Meatloaf's voice starts to grow. And then when the band kicks in, the song explodes like dynamite. it just goes off when meatloaf sings open up the sky let the planet that i love shine through the whole band is behind him a blazing sun shining down on meatloaf when he's singing that line you can feel like the heat in the back of your head of that sun blazing it's gorgeous he says for crying out loud you know i love you take that literally this is that character standing on a mountaintop Declaring to the entire world, she is his everything. The clouds part. They bathe the world in glowing golden light. And it, that light is just a spotlight for two lovers. That's what it is. Oh, I, I am deep. I get very deep. People have no conception of it. They just, because it's meatloaf, I couldn't possibly be deep. The entire end of the song is a declaration of undying love. For taking in the sun when I'm feeling so cold. For giving me a child my body's old. For pulling me away when I'm starting to fall. For revving me up when I'm starting to stall. When he sings that last bit, he's belting it out. He's screaming to the heavens. It's all in. Exactly. That's it. If you follow your suggestion, this might be a continuation of Paradise by the Dashboard Light. This is those two characters coming back together. This is a reaffirmation of love, like real love. Like it, yeah. It did work out. The song is him setting the record straight. Mm-hmm. I, I took you for granted. You're right. I guess regardless of, of any any of that narrative, it's like the uh, with all of the young love songs, for crying out loud is a good way to end that with like, there is hope for hope for love or whatever. It's more mature. It's a little more sober. And I think that's necessary. It's a great way to wrap the album up. I agree. For crying out loud is without a doubt, the greatest love song ever written. I'm telling you, it is the greatest love song ever, ever Put to music. I got a fucking question for you. You got a favorite song off of this album? I, I go back and forth between the title track and For Crying Out Loud. I love Heaven Can Wait. I think it's gentle. I think it's beautiful. But Bad Out of Hell is so bombastic and over the top. For Crying Out Loud, when the band kicks in and the song becomes something entirely different, Max Weinberg is going insane on that drum kit. I'm in the It sounds like he's trying to shake the earth apart with his percussion. And it just drives me nuts. That entire song, the way it builds from something simple to something so complex and soaring, it's between Bad Out of Hell and For Crying Out Loud. If you put a gun to my head, I'd say Bad Out of Hell. I'd have to agree on that. Yeah, I'd say it's got to be Bad Out of Hell for me too. At first, uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, but uh, after I listened to it, the more times I've listened to it, I think... 
I just like bat out a hell better. You're a man with exceptional taste, Kai. We've wrapped up our discussion of the album, but we'll finish up with a little afterward. Todd Rundgren who was producing the album, he was working under the assumption that Bad Out of Hell had the support of RCA Records. He thought RCA was going to release it. When he eventually realized this deal with RCA didn't exist, he ended up paying for the bulk of the album's production work out of pocket. It wouldn't have existed without his monetary contribution, which is a big deal, is that eventually these guys managed to sell Bad of Hell to Cleveland International Records, which I guess was a subsidiary of Epic Records. The founder of the company, Steve Popovich, was convinced by Stephen Van Zandt, another E Street Band alum, to take a chance on meeting with these guys. Popovich heard the spoken word intro to Hot Summer Night. On a hot summer night, would you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses? He thought it was fucking amazing. And so he was like, <laughs> enough to sell him on this album. He was like, that's it. I want to put this thing out. He thought it was the greatest fucking thing he'd ever heard. And so we got to put Bad Out of Hell out on the streets. I think it was October 77 they released it. Now, apparently everybody at Epic fucking hated this album they didn't want to put it out but popovich i don't know look, popovich saw something here and he pretty relentlessly worked his ass off to try to get radio play for this album and everybody hated it when it came out it took 10 months and it took the president of cbs named walter yetnikoff a couple of other guys the guy who was head of cbs classic the head of epic and two of my best friends ever john belushi and gilda radner to make that album actually break. And Gilda and John pressured Lauren Michaels for nine months to get me on Saturday Night Live. He finally gave in and put me on the next to last show in 78. That broke after that show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I would like you to meet Loaf. Beg your pardon? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, of course. Ladies and gentlemen, meet love! Rock opera wasn't a category of music yet. No, nothing like this had really existed before, and that was going to be a hard sell really no matter when. It took a long time for Bad of Hell to really take off in America, but it eventually did, and when it did, it exploded. 14 times platinum in America. 43 million copies worldwide. Well, when you look back, I think Todd Rundgren uh, recouped his initial investment many times over, so he's probably pretty happy. Yeah, he's glad he threw down that cash. And it's like, it probably just sits right, you know, like top like 100-ish albums it never goes on a bunch away. of charts michael jackson or beatles records it's just it's like wait who's buying that jesus there's still people being born who are finding these new albums and are still buying them or buying them on digital even though they had the cd and the fucking cassette that grandma got at the truck stop and then you buy it on vinyl again again when you're an adult it happened to me remember casey Kaysan used to have america's top 40 well paradise got to number 37 and he wrote a letter i have it somewhere at home somebody gave it to me we've got to get this trash out of the top 40 right out of hell i I always felt that it kind of walked a tightrope between Cordy and just overwrought. Steinman's lyrics, Meatloaf's singing, and Todd Rundgren's, I'll say brilliant, musical arrangements. They crossed that gulf pretty skillfully. What they've ended up with is an album that's filled with complex emotion. No matter what you say about the way it's presented, there is complex emotion at work here. There's satire, there's humor scattered throughout to really leaven the, at times, I'd say, very heavy core of the whole work. All this work comes together. It elevates Bad Out of Hell, not only from its contemporaries, let's be real, it had none. It also elevates Bad Out of Hell from all of its imitators over the decades. The only album that even comes close to recapturing the magic of this, Bad Out of Hell 2, <laughs> which is the only other complete and uncompromised collaboration between Jim Steinman and Meatloaf. We all know what happened next. Yeah. The story, it doesn't necessarily have the happiest ending. Not now that they're all dead. No, but, well, Todd Rundgren's still with us. Yeah. There's one thing about Bad for Good that Meatloaf shared later on. He saw Dance in My Pants as a like a retread of Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Lost Boys and Golden Girls was like a copy of Heaven Can Wait. And you know what? He's not wrong. You can really look at 
bad for good and see Jim Steinman trying to literally recapture the magic of Bad Out of Hell. With a, a, a little butterfly net just yeah, running through the backyard. That kind of soured the relationship between the two of them for a while. And of course, in 1983, Steinman sued Meatloaf. That, <laughs> that doesn't help. No, no, that doesn't help. We've never not stopped talking. Jim and I have never sued each other, really. It's always been record companies or managers or lawyers or something. In 2006, Meatloaf released Bad Out of Hell 3, The Monsters Loose, which was produced by Desmond Child. Half the tracks, 7 out of 14, written by Jim Steinman, but all of them were from pre-existing works, and the man himself had no direct input. Interestingly, Meatloaf, in the intervening years, disowned the album completely. He called recording Bad Out of Hell 3 a mistake and that it shouldn't exist. Because without Jim Steinman, it's not Bad Out of Hell. But honestly, none of that matters. Bad Out of Hell remains the crowning achievements of both their careers. Jim Steinman claimed that he was making cinematic music, but really, Bad Out of Hell has more in common with the theater. Movements are heightened on the stage because you're trying to sell your emotion, not just to the people in the front row, but to the people in the back. They're belting it out to reach the cheap seats. That's what Bad Out of Hell is. It's grandiose. It's Grand Guignol, you know, there's blood and guts spilling out on the stage. Yeah. Life is inherently ridiculous. Life is yeah. melodramatic. Our emotions can feel so big sometimes that we can't contain them. And that's what Bad Out of Hell captures brilliantly. It deliberately is heightened, it's over the top, but those emotions at its core are all too real. But Meatloaf, he broke the fucking mold. This music? <laughs> I mean, really, he broke the He was a big motherfucker. He broke that mold. You couldn't make another Meatloaf after him. He broke that mold. 40 million copies worldwide. Untold millions of fans. This music and this man found their audience. This is another direct quote from Jim Steinman that I think he puts it perfectly. If there is a market for a 350-pound man singing Wagnerian 10-minute rock and roll epics, We've got it covered. <laughs> I mean, that's it. That's it. Meatloaf used his stage experience to bring these characters that Steinman wrote to vivid life. Between Meatloaf and Jim Steinman, there was a genuine collaboration. It was born of friendship. And by all accounts, despite the issues they had, the two of them remained friends until the end. But the pair were never better than when they were together. And as for Jim Steinman himself... When you think about it, the success of Bad Out of Hell validated his imagination. He had this inner life that got him through all the dull, miserable moments of his youth. And this success opened up so many doors for the man. His dreams came true. A varied and successful career awaited him. It all culminated when his long gestating stage musical, once called Neverland, that was now titled Bad of Hell, was finally staged in its entirety in 2017. And it was called uh, Dream Engine. Then it was called Neverland. He's been writing this musical since he was 18 years old. And he's finally getting it done. And I'm so happy. I couldn't be happier for him. I'm almost going to cry because it's been his dream for so long that it actually is happening. That was the ultimate culmination of his career, the thing he'd been working toward his entire life. He got to see it realized on stage before he died. And it all started with Bad Out of Hell. Critics moaned. They said the music was juvenile. Jim Steinman and Meatloaf had some growing up to do before they could make their masterpiece. Steinman followed his own instincts, and he never had to grow up to make Bad Out of Hell. This was Peter Pan creating his own Neverland in 47 minutes of operatic rock and roll perfection. That's Bad Out of Hell, Kai. Fuck yeah, it is. So uh, I guess we're I guess we're gonna turn the keys on Bad Out of Hell and blast that bitch into the cannon. Oh yeah! Oh, it's riding off into the sunset on fucking big ass Harley. Bad Out of Hell by Jim Steinman, Meatloaf, and Todd Rundgren has officially been inducted into the Trapo Essentials Canon. I, I would like to offer a toast to uh, Jim Steinman and Meatloaf. Good luck, gentlemen, wherever you are. You've changed many lives. This young boy's life was one of them here's to you jim steinman and, and meatloaf wherever you are cheers dear listeners if you would like to get in touch with us to tell us what you think about this 
masterwork bat out of hell you can do so all you have to do is uh go to our official blog traposhow.blogspot.com that's t-r-a-p-p-o show.blogspot.com and leave a comment you can leave us a comment or you can send us an email too. traposhow at gmail.com t-r-a-p-p-o s-h-o-w at gmail.com we'd be glad to hear from you unless you say something really bad and then uh, uh, we just won't read your shit we don't care we will read it and then, no, and, we then and we'll laugh at it and then we'll delete it you can tell us we're fucking idiots so i don't care thanks for listening and uh i don't know get the fuck off the internet as a, as a full album i don't know if i'd ever top it the best album i'll probably ever make is better the hell it was about testing boundaries and not afraid to make something excessive and especially not afraid to go over the top, because if you don't go over the top, you don't see what's on the other side. For a lot of people, I think it was an introduction to things operatic and mythic and heightened. They didn't know it from pop music. I'm most proud that it did that. Did that and that, you know, 45 million people out there actually bought it. Multiple copies, still biased to listen to it. And to me, it doesn't sound one hour out of date. It was never in any date anyway. It was completely out of its time then, so it won't really get dated because it didn't fit whenever it was made. It might, you know, another hundred years be just right. I don't know. Um, I'm just proud what it represents because what it represents is what I love and what I always responded to, and I think it's definitely the story of 40 Million Outcasts trans- transformed into heroes. <laughs>